0: Let's take our Bibles once again and return to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 42. The Gospel of Luke, chapter uh, 42, 24, forgive me. I think I'm dyslexic, I'm not even reading. Luke 24, we're going to pick up with verse 36. Things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as You see that I have? And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Father, this is your word. We are your people and we believe that this is your word. You are speaking to us, but we need ears to hear. May your Spirit provide that which we need. For our good, Father, and for the glory of Christ, amen.
1: amen.
0: Well, as I have sometimes mentioned before, and as my family would attest, I am of a of mixed mind when it comes to museums. We're talking about museums that exhibit what's called modern art. I'll go along because I love my family. And if that's what mom wants to do, that's what we do. But it's not a destination I would choose. But if you're talking about a museum which is exhibiting, you know actual art, (laughs) then I'm all in. By actual art, I'm talking about paintings of things. If you go to a museum with actual art, or an ancient church for that matter, you may come across something called a triptych. A triptych is a three-paneled painting, and typically they will portray three parallel scenes of a single story. That's what we have here in Luke 24. We are being provided with a resurrection triptych, three parallel scenes from Easter Day. If the scenes were painted, the first panel would be a painting of the women in conversation with the angels at the empty tomb. The second would be of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burning as they listened to Christ, explain the Old Testament scriptures to them. And the third panel would be a painting of Jesus suddenly standing in the midst of his disciples that Easter evening, and that's what we come to this morning. From a literary point of view, Luke's resurrection triptych is particularly stunning because if we go back and observe each of these stories, we'll see that all three scenes follow the same outline. There is first confusion, and then rebuke, and then instruction, and then finally witness. As we take up this third and final scene, we see confusion bordering on pandemonium. The eleven have gathered behind closed doors in Jerusalem. John also describes this in John chapter 20. The apostle Peter had amazed them by relating that he had personally seen the Lord. Peter's testimony was then followed by the entrance of the two disciples from from the Emmaus road with the report of their own astounding encounter with Christ. In verse 36 and 37 we read that while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And you can almost see the eyes of the disciples get wider as this goes along, as they're listening to Peter's report. And then bigger still, as they hear from the disciples returned from Emmaus. But they must have been the size of saucers when finally Jesus Appears standing in their midst. And not only was he standing among them, but of course he speaks to them as well. Peace be to you. Is it a coincidence that at the announcement of his birth, the angels had declared peace? And here, after the resurrection... He himself speaks peace to his disciples. As we read of the state of the disciples at that moment, they didn't have much peace. They were, as Jesus said back in verse 25, foolish men and slow of heart. And now they are also confused and startled and frightened. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. Following his initial greeting, a question was asked. The purpose of the question, of course, was not to elicit information. Jesus doesn't need to learn anything. Jesus knows everything. The question was intended to be a somewhat gentle rebuke. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Well, after this, no one could continue to argue that they were seeing a ghost. Jesus offered them his body to touch, though unsurprisingly, there is no record of them taking him up on the altar, which I can perfectly understand. (laughs) They didn't need to, they knew Jesus was physically there, it was him. Yes, it was, he was in his glorified, resurrected body. But it was him, the same body that had been put into the tomb, was now standing before them. The materiality of his resurrection was a fact. And in a moment, everything changed. The scripture still speaks of their disbelief. But it, now it's a different kind of a disbelief. It's a disbelief based in joy we were told that while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? Now what on earth does that mean? That they still could not believe because of their joy. I think you know what it means. We all know what this means. It was too good to be true. They believed, even though it was too wonderful for them to believe. I've never played the lottery, much less won it. (laughs) But I would assume that it's like someone who is checking their numbers. And all the numbers are right there, in black and white. And there's no doubt about it, but it still takes a while for the reality to set in. Mm-hmm. This can't possibly be true. But there it is. That's what this is. The, the Greek literally reads, they being unbelieving from joy and amazement. So Jesus then, as gracious as he always is deals the death blow to any remaining doubts when he asks them if they have anything there to eat and they give him a piece of broiled fish and he takes it and he eats it before them this wasn't because he was hungry Mm -hmm. it was another way of demonstrating that here he is in his flesh He is able to eat. He's got a physical body. The same kind of physical body, by the way, that will be ours after our own resurrection. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul's whole argument. Just as Christ was raised, we will be raised as well. Mm. We will dwell forever in the new heaven and the new earth in physical bodies. And praise God, we're going to be able to eat. Yes.
1: <laughs> Hallelujah.
0: And the food's going to be great. Yes. Well, this was not the only time Jesus did this, of course. After the resurrection, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And now and then we have reports of him eating with the disciples. In fact, Peter told Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 that God made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And after this, none of the eleven ever again doubted the reality of the resurrection. In fact, they went to their death proclaiming the resurrection the following moments, Jesus had their attention as perhaps he had never had it before. This was so appropriate because he proceeds now to impart the eternal essentials of the gospel and their mission. The mission of the apostles and the mission that has been handed down to us. As Jesus proceeds to instruct them, we've got to note that the resurrection triptych, the three successive events of Easter Day, all focused on God's word for instruction. First, the angels at the tomb referred, to the, referred the women back to Christ's words. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. We saw that back in chapter 24. Mm-hmm. Next, Christ, incognito, chides the despondent disciples on the road to Emmaus. You see in verse 25 through 27, he says to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And now in the third panel, he explains his death, and his resurrection in the context of the Old Testament Scripture. He said to them, verse 24, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Every time, We are driven back to the word of God. The word of God is the authority. The word of God is in itself the proof. That's where the angels point. That's where Jesus points. Can you imagine? Jesus himself. All Jesus has to do is say, listen to what I'm telling you. And instead, Jesus says, look back to the Scripture. There are those who want to pit Jesus against the Bible. You start talking about the authority of Scripture. You start talking about the inspiration of Scripture. And there are people who will want to call you a bibliotar. what's What's the word? I can't pronounce it now. An idolater of the Bible. You are worshipping scripture. You're worshipping a book. No. We're just being obedient to what Jesus tells us. People want to come back and say, well, you know, Jesus never said anything about this subject or that subject So what? Have you not actually read what Jesus said? When Jesus affirms every word of the Scripture, bibliologist—that's the word—he brings the disciples back and says, "Listen." To the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms. And just like he did with those two on the road to Emmaus, he tells them, that's where you're going to find me. I'm everywhere. They were writing about me. This is a very common division of the Old Testament scripture, into the Law of Moses, the Prophets and the Psalms. And it is a common way of referring to the entire Old Testament. So what Jesus is saying is that there is no part of the Old Testament scripture that does not bear witness to him. And again, we've got to understand that one of the reasons Jesus taught them from scripture was that he did not want them to rest their belief in his resurrection on their personal experience. He was not interested in their becoming some kind of an elite group with a special knowledge of Christ. He's telling them, you're seeing me here. I've been raised. You're witnessing that. But let me tell you something. Even those who have not seen me in my resurrection body can believe in me because the scripture spoke of me. So there's not some special tier of believers. There are those who saw Jesus raised from the dead, and then there's everybody else. It's like, no, no, no. We all have the same source. We all have the scripture. Resting their faith on a miracle was not sufficient. He wanted them to ground their experience of his resurrection in the massive testimony of the Word of God. And this is exactly, brothers and sisters, what Peter taught his readers when he wrote of his own experience there on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Second Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16, Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is Peter saying to his readers, You think, You've had intense spiritual experiences? Let me tell you about mine. I was on the mountain with Jesus when his glory was revealed. I was there when he was talking to Moses and Elijah. Nothing you've experienced can touch what I have experienced. But listen to where he goes from. but we have the prophetic word made more sure the prophetic word the scripture is more sure than even peter's experience On the Mount of Transfiguration, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All of that put together is Peter saying, the scripture stands above experience, and the scripture must interpret experience. Peter doesn't point to his view Of the glory of Christ revealed on the mountain. He points them to the Word of God. It is tragic, but it is true that one can actually believe in the resurrection and not believe in Christ. Mm -hmm. There have been and are such people. They were there in Jesus' day. Jesus warned in an earlier parable that we saw back in chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Say, if if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, then they won't even be convinced if they see someone risen from the dead. The word first, and then experience. Once again, Jesus begins to teach all the disciples now the things that he had taught along the road. To amaze, Jesus would have seated himself as a teacher did, taking the traditional posture of a teacher, and as he gestured there in the candlelit room, can you imagine? He's sitting there, he's teaching, and as he gestures, you're seeing the nail prints in his hands. There would have been no wandering mind there. There would have been no one there in that room staring at the floor thinking to themselves, when will this be over? I know. I don't have to be a mind reader. There are times when I look out at some who are here and I know what's going Some of you don't even try to hide it. (laughs) Not that night. Every eye was locked on him. And their minds would never have been so focused, their hearing never so acute. But even more than their human powers of attention, they were assisted by divine illumination come back here to Luke 24, and what do we find? verse 45 we're told, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They had been his devoted followers before. We nonetheless read back in chapter 18, for instance, that when he had taught these things before, they understood none of them. They didn't grasp what he was saying, but on that Easter night, the the blinders were removed as the Holy Spirit opened their minds to understand the Scripture. What a dynamic combination. The Holy Scripture illumined by the Holy Spirit. And what they learned that night, and in succeeding conversations during the next 40 days that Jesus would be with them, Before his ascension, all of that became the biblical substance for the apostolic preaching of the gospel and the apostolic mission. And you find it right here. We read that Jesus instructed them about the gospel from the Old Testament. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And from this we understand that the apostolic preaching of the gospel was always framed by the background of the Old Testament Paul says exactly this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. And then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul too was pointing the church back to the scriptures. From this we also understand that the gospel is only fully preached when it's set in that context of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Where do we find the gospel of Christ in the law? Well, most clearly we see his sufferings in the great institutions and events which are given to us in the law. According to Exodus 24, the Old Covenant is launched on a sea of blood from sacrificial animals with which Moses douses the altar and the book the people themselves. In the following centuries, oceans of blood flowed upon Jewish altars from suffering animals, affecting an external ceremonial cleansing of those who bring the offering. And these sacrifices point to and are fulfilled in the shed blood of Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews makes so clear. If the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Old Covenant sacrifices took care of the external. Jesus comes to the heart. The daily sacrifices of the Old Covenant pointed to and begged for that ultimate atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you can see that through the rest of Exodus in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy. What about the prophets? Where is the gospel found in the prophets, the most explicit foretelling of of Christ's suffering in the prophetic scriptures are, of course, in Isaiah fifty three, the text to which Christ directed his disciples in the upper room by referring to its final verse, indicating that he himself was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah fifty three drips with the passion of Jesus Christ. Not only do the prophets detail Christ's suffering, they also speak of his resurrection as well. In verse 46, Luke is apparently alluding to Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What about the Psalms? Indeed, the gospel was in the law and the gospel was in the prophets and in the Psalms as well. Psalm 22 is the classic example in which we are given a description of crucifixion centuries before crucifixion was utilized as a method of execution. And yet, it is a perfect description of what occurred on Calvary. <coughs> Psalms also teach the resurrection. As Peter explains in his Pentecost sermon, when he quotes Psalm 16, David says, Concerning him, Peter said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may be and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter explained that what David wrote there could not possibly be about David. Because David did die, and he rotted in the grave. But Christ, David's greater son, did fulfill it. Because he did not rot in the grave. Mm -hmm. He rose from the grave. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Because the Old Testament tells us, Jesus says, not only about his suffering and his death and his resurrection, but also about the mission upon which he would send his church. The law? The law foretold this right at the origin of the Jewish nation when God said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You go back to the scriptures of the Old Covenant, the covenant made between God and one particular nation, and what you find there is that God has plans not only for one particular nation, Accomplished through his ultimate offspring, Abraham's that is, Jesus Christ, as Paul explained. Now the, promise, the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So Christ is the heir and the mediator of the promise made to Abraham. And the blessing goes out to the Gentiles as they come to Christ and are incorporated into his body. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to promise. But what about the prophets? Is mission in the prophets? In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas explain why they are turning to the Gentiles, and they quote from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, a passage citing the task first given to the servant Messiah, but that is now the responsibility of his followers. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's not a new covenant statement. That's an old covenant
1: statement.
0: Hmm. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What about Psalms? This is also the ancient message of the Psalms. Psalm 22, which we've mentioned before, so graphically describes the sufferings of Christ, ends with a statement of mission. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. That Easter night, privately locked up there with the eleven, Jesus grounded the gospel and our mission in the Old Testament scriptures. He showed that the law and the prophets and the Psalms all taught his suffering and his death and his resurrection, all taught that there would be a mission to the world beginning at Jerusalem, the very heartland of the Jewish faith, the place where the incarnate Son suffered and died and rose again. The gospel is for us, and the gospel is for the world. We are to be gospel men and women who proclaim that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the the scriptures. Our message is not a philosophy. It is not even a way of life. It is the eternal good news based on historical events prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that is our message. And the message is how we fulfill the mission. The gospel demands that we share Christ everywhere and that we use our time and our resources to go to the nations. It is a matter of life and death. It is about the glory of God. Now, all three panels of the resurrection triptych conclude with witness. The women hurried from the empty tomb to share the good news with the eleven. A couple of the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus marched back to Jerusalem to share what had happened to them. And here Jesus makes it formal. Verse 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on He was promising the Holy Spirit, a promise reiterated at the ascension. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Paul testified to the Thessalonians, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the holy spirit with full conviction may we be gospel people devoted to mission in the power and the passionate conviction of the holy spirit Amen. father make it so may this mission burn within us and may we understand that the means of accomplishing the mission is the proclamation of the gospel given to us on every page of scripture. Bring it to pass, Father. Build your church. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.